This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Let me thank our witnesses for joining us today to discuss the crisis in Sudan. East Africa stands at a precipice. Three years ago, fragile transitions in Ethiopia and Sudan were once cause for cautious optimism. Today, conflict in Ethiopia, including the deadly siege of Tigray and the October 25th coup d'etat in Sudan, are cause for alarm. In April 2019, the Sudanese people peacefully and tenaciously ousted indicted war criminal Omar al-Bashir, Sudan's brutal dictator, for 30 years. Despite a violent response from his security services through five months of sustained widespread protests, the people of Sudan succeeded in their demands for a transition to democracy. Though the process was rocky, civilians were able to reach agreement with military actors on a transitional constitutional document which provided timelines for a full return to civilian rule. Al-Bashir's fall and subsequent progress on the transition paved the way for me and other members of this body to take legal action to remove Sudan from the state sponsor of terrorism lists and to support an overall thaw relations between the United States and Sudan. The military's brazen October coup has put that progress in jeopardy. The coup was the culmination of weeks of tensions between civilian and military members of Sudan's transitional government. The military's arrest and detention of Prime Minister Hamdok and other civilian officials and the killing of dozens of protesters advocating for a return to civilian rule have made it clear that military actors have little interest in ceding power and no fear of consequences for their actions. The United States, regional actors, and the international community must respond swiftly and decisively to help the Sudanese people put their country back on a democratic trajectory. While the United Nations Integrated Transitional Assistance Mission in Sudan has indicated it will facilitate Sudanese-led talks among local stakeholders, it has no means to enforce participation or to hold participants accountable for following through on commitments. Despite having publicly committed to dialogue to resolve the current crisis, the Sudanese military continues to kill, torture, abuse, and detain protesters and civil society activists. Nearly 80 civilians have been killed by security forces since the coup, including a 27-year-old man just this past weekend. While a dialogue is necessary, there must also be consequences for those responsible for human rights abuses and for those at the highest levels who have engineered the coup. In that vein, I support the Biden administration's decision to suspend $700 million in aid immediately following the coup. I also welcome the decision by the World Bank to suspend its own planned assistance. However, these actions alone have proven insufficient to end the violence and force the generals to the negotiating table. I'm pleased that the administration has taken a number of steps to increase its engagement on the crisis in Sudan, including selecting David Satterfield to succeed Ambassador Feltman as a special envoy for the Horn of Africa, and dispatching a seasoned ambassador to serve as Charlie Affair at Embassy Khartoum until an ambassador is confirmed. And I'm pleased that the White House has finally nominated an ambassador to Sudan. Given the current situation, I hope that my colleagues will join me in working to ensure that we move the nomination as expeditiously as possible. 
In the days to come, Congress will act as well. Ranking Member Risch and I are collaborating on legislation that establishes conditions that must be met prior to restarting assistance, that directs the administration to rethink its assistance strategy, and which sets up a regime of targeted sanctions for those who undertook the coup and continue to undermine the transition to democracy and abuse human rights. Thus far, a critical missing element in the administration response. I hope during the course of the testimony, you'll discuss the following. What are the prospects for a return to civilian rule? What role are the African Union, Arab Gulf states, and other regional actors playing with regard to supporting a return to dialogue and pressing military leaders to agree to yield power? What consequences were you referring to in your tweet from a week ago, Assistant Secretary Fee, and when does the administration plan to impose them? We have vital strategic interests in the Horn of Africa and the Red Sea Corridor that will be difficult, if not impossible, to meet should Sudan's transition fail. We simply cannot take that risk. Let me turn to the ranking member for his opening statement. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this is a tough one. The 2019 revolution in Sudan marked a pivotal moment for a country at the crossroads of the Sahel, East, Central, and the Horn regions of Africa. The end of the violent uh, Bashir regime was driven by millions of Sudanese through uh, nationwide mass demonstrations demanding change, and change did occur for a little while. Even though the military-led uh, Sovereign Council had ultimate authority over the Sudanese state, the establishment of a civilian-led transitional government under the leadership of Prime Minister Hamdok was a significant step toward achieving a new democratic Sudan. This government was by no means perfect. The civilians, uh, civilian groups that influenced the revolution made missteps along the way. While old and new anti-democratic forces worked furiously to infiltrate and undermine the work of the transitional government. The Hamdok government also faced a severe economic crisis and deeply complicated political challenges. In the weeks before the Sudan's October 25th coup, I, along with other members of this committee, warned uh, Sudan's military not to intervene in the efforts by Prime Minister Hamdok and his cabinet. However, the leaders of the Sovereign Council, uh, Generals Burhan and Halmeti, uh, uh, could not resist and removed the civilian government by force. While the administration has not wanted to characterize what happened on October 25th as a coup, that is indeed what it was. Foreign policy leaders released a bipartisan, bicameral statement calling what happened a coup, uh, demanded that Sudan's junta restore its civilian leadership, and vowed to take action if they did not. We followed that statement with a concurrent resolution in both chambers, further outlining our concerns. The well-documented violence against civilians before and following the October 25th coup proves that Sudan's military junta is brutal, cannot be trusted, and is incapable of leading Sudan's democratic transition. While we may need to engage generals uh, Burham and uh, Hamedi to find a path forward, uh, a path toward restoring civilian control, we must put them on notice. The United States must take action to hold the junta and other spoilers of Sudan's transition accountable. That is why my staff is working closely with the Chairman's Office on comprehensive legislation to address this issue of accountability, but more importantly, to reshape our assistance and policy approach towards Sudan. The United States must continue to support the Sudanese people and Sudan's pro-democracy forces. 
All total financial commitments made by Congress to support Sudan's civilian-led democratic transition exceed $1 billion. Congress also worked to help reshape the bilateral relationship by supporting debt relief, working with the State Department to meet uh, conditions for removing Sudan's state sponsor of terrorism designation and restoring its sovereign immunity. I'm concerned, however, by how the, the United States positioned itself before and following the October 25, uh, 25th coup. Looking forward, the United States must have a clear vision for what we would like to see in Sudan. We must be prudent with our tax dollars and with clear-eyed determination decide whether we should commit all this funding to Sudan while coup leaders remain in control of the government. The Biden administration must also act urgently to help stem the tide of military coups occurring across Africa, not just in the Sudan. If democracy is indeed a priority for this administration, it must view these coups as a trend that imperils the future of democracy in Africa and worldwide. Finally, I have consistently called for the appointment of an experienced U.S. ambassador to Sudan since Secretary Pompeo agreed to exchange ambassadors with Sudan in December 2019. I'm pleased the administration is moving an experienced diplomat uh, like uh, Lucy uh, Tamlin to uh, Khartoum as charge d'affaires. But the two years we spent without a full-time ambassador in Sudan reflects a broader problem we must address. The low priority of the State Department faces in filling positions at all levels for posts in Africa with, I say that, with full understanding how difficult these posts are. In the days leading up to this hearing, the Biden administration signaled to this uh, committee its intent to put forward a nominee. Uh, intent uh, is good, actions better. We're still waiting. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, let me turn to our witnesses uh, with us this morning on behalf of the administration. It's Ambassador Isabel Coleman, Deputy Administrator for Policy and Programming at the U.S. Agency for International Development, where she is responsible for program and policy oversight, including the agency's regional and pillar bureaus. As Deputy Administrator, she guides USAID's crisis response, leads in work in countering the influence of China and Russia, and is responsible for overseeing agency efforts to prevent famine and future pandemics, strengthen education, health, democracy, and economic growth, and improve responses to climate change. Ambassador Coleman is a foreign policy and global development expert with more than 25 years of experience working in government, the private sector, and nonprofits. From 2014 to 17, she was the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations for Management, Reform, and Special Political Affairs. During that time, she represented the United States in the UN Security Council on Africa and peacekeeping issues and on issues related to the budget. Joining her on this panel is Ambassador Molly Fee, Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs at the Department of State. Ambassador Fee is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, who most recently served as the Deputy Special Representative for Afghanistan Reconciliation. Ambassador Fee was U.S. Ambassador to South Sudan from 2015 to 2017, Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. Embassy in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and as Chief of Staff in the Office of the Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan. Additionally, she was the Acting Secretary for International Organization Affairs, as well as the Deputy Security Council Coordinator at the U.S. Mission to the U.N. 
handling UN engagement in Africa and the Middle East for both portfolios. This is um, a very well-versed panel, particularly as it relates to this issue. This is also the first time each of our witnesses has testified before this committee in their current roles, for which they've been confirmed to. So congratulations to both of you. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for your service. And with that, we'll start five minutes. We ask you to summarize um, your statement uh, in about five minutes. Your full statement will be included in the record without objection. And let me turn to Ambassador Coleman first. Uh, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to testify today on USAID's assistance to the people of Sudan and our response to the devastating setback to Sudan's democratic transition since October 25th when the military detained civilian leaders, disrupt, disrupted communication networks, and began killing protesters in the streets. Congressional interest in Sudan and support for the people of Sudan have been essential over the years. USAID greatly appreciates the additional $700 million in funding Congress appropriated last year for Sudan. Despite our collective efforts to help Sudan solidify the democratic transition, Recent events serve as a reminder that progress toward democracy can be fragile. I thank the committee for its attention to Sudan today. For decades, we have witnessed the appalling violence and human rights abuses, as well as violations of international humanitarian law committed by Sudanese security forces against civilians. This includes the massacre of at least 127 peaceful democracy activists in Khartoum on June 3, 2019. Following Sudan's inspiring citizen-led revolution in 2019, USAID reimagined and expanded its support, becoming the largest donor supporting Sudan's democratic transition, including assistance to then Prime Minister Hamdok's office and key ministries to help them deliver on the goals of the revolution. USAID partnered with the government to mitigate the sharp effects of difficult yet necessary economic reforms on Sudanese families to begin to right the ship after years of economic neglect and mismanagement. Our assistance to the civilian side of the transitional government complemented our longstanding support for Sudanese civil society and peacebuilding efforts, particularly in marginalized and conflict-affected communities. These programs operated alongside USAID's life-saving humanitarian assistance. After the military takeover on October 25th, the United States announced a pause on new obligations from the $700 million appropriation while we evaluated next steps in our assistance for Sudan. Following a review of our programs, that pause remained in force for assistance to Sudan's government. Meanwhile, we have expanded activities that support the Sudanese people in their democratic aspirations. Our current approach links the resumption of any assistance to the government to the restoration of the civilian-led transition. We have coordinated this effort with like-minded international partners. In light of the dynamic political environment, we are revising the original plan for the $700 million, and we look forward to continue engagement with Congress to find the best way forward. We are now focused on ramping up support for Sudan's democratic transition in three primary ways. First, strengthening civil, uh, civilian political leadership, Second, promoting respect for human rights, including freedom of expression and right of peaceful assembly. And third, supporting the Sudanese people's demand for an end to their military's longstanding domination of politics and the economy. Our goal remains to help the people of Sudan in their pursuit of a civilian-led democratic government that is responsive to its people. 
Our programs support civil society to organize around, advocate for, and engage in transition discussions and peace negotiations. We support our partners in building the capacity of youth, women, and marginalized citizens to lead, whether in political parties, civil society organizations, or in their communities. We support civil society in conducting peace-building activities, including ongoing national efforts to reach a political agreement to the current crisis, and engagement with political consultations facilitated by UNITAMS. USAID also supports journalists and independent media to accurately and professionally report on transition, peace, and political issues. Amid the recent political turmoil, humanitarian needs continue to rise. The UN estimates that nearly one-third of Sudan's population will need humanitarian assistance in 2022. This includes approximately 10 million people facing life-threatening levels of acute food insecurity. USAID has long been the largest humanitarian donor to the people of Sudan. In fiscal years 2021 and 2022 to date, we have contributed nearly 430 million in funding to provide for the basic needs of refugees, internally displaced persons, host community members, and others in need. This year, we will work to mitigate the suffering of vulnerable populations and prioritize life-saving assistance in Darfur, South Kordofan, and Blue Nile. We will continue to meet the immense needs of the Sudanese people as we urge other donors to join us in these efforts as well. Thank you again for the opportunity to testify, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Fee. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, distinguished members of the committee, let me also thank you for your longstanding interest in and support for a democratic Sudan. We share your alarm about the deteriorating situation and the risk of regression. As you've noted, since the fall of the Bashir dictatorship in 2019, the United States and our international partners have robustly endeavored to support the Sudanese people and have worked closely with this committee and Congress on their behalf. This was always an ambitious undertaking. After 30 years of an Islamist military dictatorship and recurring internal conflict, the Sudanese are coping with a burdensome legacy, including the generational damage to the country's historically marginalized areas, such as Darfur. Even as we welcome the transitional government's progress in political and economic reform, we were acutely aware of the immense structural issues facing the transition. Yet, on the other side of the ledger, we have all been inspired by the remarkable and resilient civilian resistance movement, which resulted, as you've noted, in the Constitutional Declaration and the Juba Peace Agreement. These two documents offer the promise of transition to democracy and peace for Sudan. On October 25th, as we all know, Sudan Security Services upended the civilian-military partnership when they betrayed the transition and the Sudanese people by overthrowing the Prime Minister and Cabinet. The subsequent November 21st political agreement that restored Prime Minister Hamdok to office failed because it did not include key civilian stakeholders and did not end military violence against civilian protesters. Hamdok's decision on January 2nd to resign further shocked the Sudanese political system. Given the unacceptable actions of Sudan's security services, the Sudanese people are now intent on restoring civilian leadership of the country's democratic transition through reform of the Constitutional Declaration and the Juba Peace Agreement. They demand a new relationship between the military and civilians, one that redefines and right-sizes the role of the military, from partner in a transitional government 
to participant in the transitional process. The United States fully supports the civilians in realizing this ambition and is taking concrete action to reinforce their efforts. Sudanese stakeholders tell us they welcome international support to help them find common ground. With the announcement on January 8th that UNITAMS would facilitate a Sudanese-led political process, the international community began actively working with Sudanese civilian stakeholders to build consensus around a common vision for reform of the Constitutional Declaration in order to refashion the path of the civilian transition and implementation of the Juba Peace Agreement. With the Security Council mandate to use its good offices in support of the transition, UNITAMS will be in front, but not alone. The United States, in concert with the Friends of Sudan, has pledged our full support, recognizing the uphill work ahead. Successful and durable democratic transitions require broad-based agreement among multiple stakeholders in the capital and across this diverse country. It will require the contributions of many to meet this sizable challenge. We are prepared not only to provide programmatic and financial support, but also to work closely with UNITAM's leadership and key international partners, especially the African Union, the European Union, and Saudi Arabia, to shape this process to ensure it delivers timely, concrete results. In my two visits to Sudan, including most recently with Ambassador Satterfield, I heard a strong desire to find a way forward. On behalf of the United States, I have made clear publicly and privately that violence against peaceful protesters perpetrated by security services since October 25th must end. So too must the detentions of civil society activists, the use of sexual violence, closure of media outlets, attacks on medical facilities, and communication blackouts. We have already worked intensively with our partners in the international community to impose significant costs on Sudan's military regime for its actions on October 25th. The pause of bilateral and multilateral assistance to the government, estimated to reach more than four billion US dollars, and of debt relief, estimated at 19 billion US dollars, has left the country's finances in a precarious state. We have been clear that restoration of international financial assistance is predicated on ending the violence and restoring the democratic transition. I have also made clear that we are prepared to apply additional costs should the violence continue and the transition remain stalled. We are now reviewing the full range of traditional and non-traditional tools at our disposal to further reduce the funds available to Sudan's military regime, to isolate its military-controlled companies, and to increase the reputational risk for any who choose to continue to engage in business as usual with Sudanese security services and their economic enterprises. Three decades of military rule under Bashir failed to bring stability or prosperity to Sudan. Sudanese history undeniably demonstrates that only a democratic state can produce a sustainable peace. It is time for Sudan's military leaders to recognize this reality. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, and thank you both. Uh, we'll start a series of five minutes questions, uh, and the chair will recognize himself. Uh, the October 25th coup, and it was a coup and should be treated uh, as such by the administration, was a blatant power grab by the military after months of mounting tensions between the military and civilian elements of the Sovereign Council. The root cause of the tensions appears to be the reluctance of the military to cede power to civilian authorities. Even now, the bloody crackdown on civilians continues and the fatality count is rising. 
The administration has taken some actions, suspending most assistance, high-level diplomatic missions to the region, meetings with local and regional stakeholders, and public statements, but security forces continue to attack civilians, arrest civil society activists, and engage in sexual violence with impunity. So, Ambassador Fee, why hasn't the administration imposed personal targeted sanctions on those responsible <laughs> for impeding Sudan's democratic process and perpetrating human rights abuses? Mr. Chairman, as I outlined, we worked closely with um, our partners in the international community to impose extraordinary uh, economic pressure on the government. Uh, the combined efforts have had a devastating fiscal impact and have made very clear that Sudan cannot move forward uh, with international assistance if the security forces don't change their behavior. I have also made the, those points clear in my engagement, as has Ambassador Feltman and Ambassador Satterfield in their roles as special envoy. We are also engaging, as you know, regional and international partners to pass the same messages. So, so, but my question is, uh, we have not, to my knowledge, imposed personal targeted sanctions on those responsible. Um, for example, the Sudanese security forces reportedly have vast business interests, controlling an estimated 250 plus companies in various sectors from mining to agriculture. Uh, why hasn't the administration considered sanctioning any of these companies or the security force members who own them. It would seem to me that this would be a priority since they're the ones who seem to be in the intransigent entity here in terms of allowing Sudan to move forward. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We agree exactly that those are sectors where we should explore imposing pressure and we are actively looking at how to do that. You know our traditional existing regimes were not uh, specifically designed for this moment. So we are looking at how we might develop a new regime in which we would work with you. And I was gratified to hear about the legislation you're considering. And we are looking also at non-traditional ways to get at these financial sources of power for the security force. Yeah, I, I, I would think that you have authorities already under a variety of existing laws, but uh, you have failed, you not personally, but of course the administration has failed to take use of any of them. If that is the case, and you feel that you don't have them, then please, by all means, uh, let the committee know what it is that you're missing, because we would uh, be very desirous of uh, giving you the wherewithal. Uh, you and uh, Special Envoy Satterfield recently returned, you referred to it, a trip to Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia. Is there progress on persuading the Sudanese military to end its practice of using lethal force, arbitrary arrests, sexual violence against civil society activists and pro-democracy protesters? Mr. Chairman, I think it's too soon to tell. Uh, certainly, the protests are going to continue. This is an immutable fact. Uh, we made that clear to the Sudanese security force leaders and to their partners in the Arab region. Uh, that they need to change this behavior. They need to cease using lethal force against protesters. They need to uh, 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 provide accountability for the conduct of security forces. The Sovereign Council, which as you know is currently governing Sudan, has established a committee to look into the violence on January 17th. These are nascent and inadequate steps, but we are mobilizing our pressure. We also stopped in Addis and spoke to the African Union about its engagement. 
the EGAD envoy is currently in uh, Khartoum. We're coordinating with other like-minded partners to try and pass that message. This meeting today is a helpful sign uh, to all these leaders that they need to change their behavior if they want Sudan to succeed. Well, I hope it, is, it, it would not be necessary to have a hearing in order to move them, but that the administration would. Let me turn to Ambassador Coleman to finalize. Uh, um, first of all, we'd like to be consulted on your plans before they are finalized, as you uh, reference a $700 million package to be readjusted to meet the new realities of Sudan's political and economic crisis. I'd, I'd like to have some insights as to what you're thinking there. And, and finally, how is USAID working to address the needs in Darfur in the wake of the coup? We shouldn't lose sight of the continued violence and displacement in Darfur as we are de dealing with this larger problem. The, these voices have been marginalized for far too long. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, yes, we absolutely will consult with you before we finalize um, our uh, plans for the $700 million appropriation. So as I noted um, in my opening statement, uh, immediately after the events of October 25th, we paused all of our funding and did a review <clears throat> and made a determination not to move forward with any funding that uh, works directly with the government. We have instead reprogrammed um, some of that money um, and uh, directed it to activities that support civil society in a couple of different areas, in particular on strengthening civil society and civilian political engagement um, as partners in the peace process, um, helping them advocate, uh, providing civic education and training um, even transporting uh, local groups to Khartoum so that they can engage in um, dialogue um, with UNITAMs and with other groups, connecting them uh, for the ability to come up with a more unified vision of um, civilian demands going forward for this transition. We're also spending money on human rights work uh, to uh, bolster um, collection of uh, information around human rights abuses, um, independent media um, that are um, able to both bring in um, different voices into the media space um, and um, uh, work on um, anti-corruption measures with transparency and their reporting. Um, with respect to Darfur, yes, um, sir, there's just remarkable needs still in Darfur um, across <clears throat> several of those states, Darfur, Blue Nile, South and West Cardiffan, there's almost uh, 3 million internally displaced people, and we are working with our partners there uh, to provide basic needs and humanitarian um, assistance, um, also trying to um, help uh, with some health needs there and livelihoods in the agricultural space, as so many of the people do depend on subsistence farming with a specific focus on, on women um, and also addressing uh, some of the gender-based violence that has happened there, uh, providing um, uh, support for, for survivors of gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. Thank um, you. That too. Senator Risch. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> First of all, uh, bless you for what you do. I mean, this is a heavy lift. When you listen to the list of problems uh, with the human rights abuses and the shootings and murders and everything else, 
uh, it's easy, it's really easy to get uh, discouraged, particularly when uh, we've done uh, we, we've we've done some pretty heavy lifting, particularly financially, to try to to lift this thing, and it's it just goes uh, unrewarded. So it it's it's difficult. And and look, there's there's all kinds of, of uh, problems on the continent, and they they seem like they uh, keep getting worse. And I as I've looked at it, I don't think this one is the worst, but probably got to be uh, uh, pretty close to it. You know, in, in recent months, there's been a half a dozen coups, as you know, on the continent. Uh, one country had two coups. I, as I was sitting here, I was just handed a note that in uh, Guinea-Bissau, excuse me, they've um, gunfire has just broken out uh, near the presidential palace where a cabinet meeting is being held. So, probably got another one going on there. Uh, g give us some hope here. I I heard the antiseptic recitation of of what you've told them and, and how you insist on this and, and that, but g give us some hope that, uh, that, that we can look forward to seeing uh, uh, things improve because it's just, it, it, to, to see the, the backward sliding as bad as it's been, and particularly with everybody trying to help, it's, it's really disheartening. So, Miss um, uh, V, why don't you start and see, Give me something uh, to feel good about. Thank you, Ranking Member. And first, let me let me say I think everyone shares uh, the disappointment and frustration in the current state of events. Um, but I do have hope. Uh, I've had the opportunity in my brief time in this new assignment to travel to Khartoum twice, and you know I've been in a lot of difficult places in the world. Uh, the Sudanese people are amazing. Uh, they are committed. They are creative, uh, they have a vision for what they want, and they're not going to let that vision go. Uh, and, and I haven't seen that kind of strength and cohesion in, in other difficult environments in, in which I've worked. Also, the security forces in Sudan are difficult, but they are not monolithic. Uh, some of them, I, I think, truly would like to affect a transition. They don't know how to do it. They're falling back on their old playbook. So I think there's really an opportunity for diplomacy here. I'm excited by so many players in the region, in the international community, who want to support the Sudanese, who have their own agency and their own vision for their country. Uh, so I believe that that's the strength that we haven't seen in other environments, that this is not only in the capital, but it's in the, in the many different diverse areas of Sudan. So I think we need to continue to support them. It's not, frankly, a surprise that this transition is difficult. I think we need to have a, 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 an approach that can absorb shocks that will be inevitable, um, continue to put the pressure on, continue to, to provide the kind of technical assistance that the deputy administrator referred to. So that, that's how I look at it right now, sir. Well, thanks so much for that. I, I, I hope that's a realistic appraisal of uh, uh, of the conditions there on the ground. Um, I, I can understand how a population has the commitments and enthusiasm and, and the optimism that you've described, but if they don't have the guns and the other side's got the guns, it's, th th that's difficult. Also, the, the issue of, of the uh, armed forces, where, where they are not monolithic, that sword cuts both ways, because if they're not monolithic, they don't have a strong leader uh, that can actually uh, talk uh, everybody into laying down their guns and doing things peacefully. So, so that that sort of cuts both ways. I I, I hope you're right, um, Ms. Coleman. You want to take a shot at this? 
Um, yes, thank you, Senator. I think I would just underscore what um, Assistant Secretary Fee has noted, which is the incredible resiliency of the Sudanese people and the vibrancy of this movement, um, despite the security forces turning their guns on all of these people too often over the last two years. They continue to come out into the streets. They continue to mobilize and protest peacefully. And we have seen just a remarkable um, determination not to give up. Um, people uh, t taking such courageous acts, um, uh, speaking out, uh, starting new media. There's a, a woman who was a spokesperson in the prime minister's office who USAID supported um, with communications while the civilian leader was, was in his role. Um, after Prime Minister Hamdok left, she left too, and now she started her own media company, continuing to put out messaging about peaceful transition, democracy, human rights. Um, these are people who are putting their, themselves and their families on the line to fight for something. And I think it's um, just a, a, a reflection of the resiliency of a people who lived for decades under an authoritarian government most people in the country grew up knowing nothing else, and here they are with a chance at a better life for themselves, for their children, one based on rule of law and democracy and human rights, and they just won't give up. And I think that's the message that the security forces are slowly coming to realize is the, is the reality of this situation. Well, I guess time will tell. My time's up, but before I do that, could you give us an update on the on getting an ambassador to the country. We're all anxious to see that. I know that's gotta be a, a difficult uh, post to take on, but uh, we need to see an ambassador. I know they've said intent to, to uh, appoint, but uh, where, where are we? Senator, the process is being pushed as quickly as that can be uh, by, by the State Department, and we will work in partnership uh, with the Senate uh, to hopefully achieve uh, nomination, um, full nomination and confirmation as soon as possible. And I'm very proud and I'm glad you welcomed the role of Ambassador Lucy Tamlin. She's a terrific seasoned diplomat and she will be very important at this critical moment to support the Sudanese people as they put this transition back on track. Have you got some uh, experienced uh, people over there you got on a list that are willing to do this? It seems to me uh, that that's going to be the toughest thing once you get that. Uh, making a choice shouldn't be that hard, but... Uh, it, it seems it could move faster than what it is. I agree with you, sir. People are policy, um, and, and we're doing our very best to get our best out there. Mm. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, I understand Senator Cardin is with us virtually. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and let me thank uh, both of our witnesses uh, for their extraordinary service. Uh, it's certainly a difficult circumstance in Sudan. I understand that. We're with the Sudanese people. Uh, but clearly, uh, we must make it clear that a military coup and the military that is now controlling the country, uh, we have to be with the Sudanese people, not just by our words, but by our deeds. So as I listen to your testimony about what we're doing in consultation with other partners in the region and trying to work out some type of a reconciliation here, it seems to me we need to do more than that. I heard you, Secretary Fee, talk about uh, human rights violations and holding those responsible for these human rights violations accountable. Uh, I've heard that before. And unfortunately, as you go to some form of a reconciliation or some form of a, a, a process forward, 
it seems like holding those who are violated human rights is always the last thing and very seldom really accomplished. So what confidence can you give us that the Biden administration will insist as part of the process, those who have violated the human rights of the Sudanese people, in fact, will be held accountable in this process? Thank you, Senator. Uh, first of all, in addition to the programming uh, that the deputy administrator referred to, I want you to uh, just call to your attention that we have from the Bureau of, the Bureau of Democracy and Human Rights a three-year dedicated program to help the Sudanese document human rights violations. So that program is underway to support them in what they demand. Uh, again, going back to the strength of the civilian stakeholder movement, they want accountability. Uh, and this is a, a key topic of discussion among the stakeholders who are now reviewing and uh, desirous of changing the constitutional declaration. All the Sudanese that I've had a chance to meet have made very clear that they understand addressing accountability is important both to pull uh, the military forward on the transition and to heal the country and allow it to remain a durable and stable democracy. So I, 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 that is their commitment and we will back up their commitment. But I, I wanted you to be aware of the specific programmatic uh, efforts we're, we're undertaking. We also have the authority uh, that Congress has given us through GLOMAG. Uh, that's a possibility we can immediately use in addition to exploration of the other options I discussed earlier. Thank you, sir. Well, and I hope you'll use the tools that we provided, and I hope you'll take uh, advantage of uh, Chairman Menendez's offer. If you need additional tools and toolkit to, to deal with these issues, please let us know. I have a, another concern, and that is you talk about working with our regional partners. Uh, at times, I find in regards to their policies in Sudan, we're not always aligned uh, completely as to what we are trying to uh, accomplish. I have confidence in the Biden administration in supporting the Sudanese people over their, their military uh, control, but I'm not certain about other regional partners in that region as to what they will do ultimately uh, in regards to the power structure within Sudan, as well as uh, holding those responsible for human rights violations accountable in, in the final resolutions here. So what can you tell me about how we're working with our traditional partners in the region to make sure we're all on the same path for the outcome in Sudan that is in the best interest of the people. Thank you, Senator. You're quite right to highlight uh, the importance of engaging with these partners who have extensive uh, ties, including uh, personal, political, and economic with Sudan. That's why it's so important for us to talk to them and discuss our view, which is that there is a false choice if they think supporting the security forces at the expense of the civilians will bring stability to Sudan, which is what they claim they seek. That's, that's really the basis of our dialogue, that we just deeply contest that assumption that uh, support to the security forces exclusively will result in stability uh, in Sudan. In the meeting that uh, uh, Special Envoy Satterfield and I attended in Riyadh as part of the Friends of Sudan, uh, which included Gulf Arab states, uh, we also had an opportunity to meet the Saudi foreign minister while we were there. That final statement condemned the use of violence against protesters, protesters and committed all the members of the Friends of Sudan to not restoring or expanding financial assistance or economic assistance until uh, the violence ended and the transition was back on track. So those are some examples of how we're engaging and what we're saying. 
Well, I, I appreciate those responses. I think uh, we need to follow this carefully because I've seen this in the past. Uh, we, we see statements that are made, but they're not carried out by the specific actions. Uh, and uh, I hope that you will continue to make a priority, uh, a resolution in the interests of, of the Burmese people. Uh, I mean, Yemen, the people of, of, uh, of Sudan, Sudanese people, as well as uh, holding accountable those responsible for these human rights violations. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Rounds. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, let me just begin by saying thank you to both of you for your interest in your agreement to participate in this meeting, but also your interest overall in um, the situation at hand in, in Sudan. I'd like to, to read just a, what I believe is a fair analysis, and I'd like to get your thoughts about where we sit right now over the, after looking at the last three years. As I understand it, in April of 2019, nationwide protests spurred the ouster of Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir after three decades in power. To defuse the crisis at that time, mediators brokered a deal in which the coup leaders and civilians would share power during a three-year transition period, leading to elections and full civilian rule. The transitional government that was subsequently formed was broadly welcomed by the international community and began reforms, pursued peace talks with rebel groups, and sought to end the country's international isolation. The government's reforms helped to secure funding from international donors, including the United States, and support for multilateral debt relief. U.S.-Sudan relations improved dramatically, and in late 2020, Sudan agreed to normalize ties with Israel. In mid-September 2021, the transitional government announced that a coup attempt purportedly by loyalists of the former regime had been thwarted. General Burhan became increasingly critical of civilian leaders, including Prime Minister Hamduk, and that was after this had occurred. Um, in the aftermath, he accused politicians of alienating the armed forces and of neglecting their governing responsibilities while fighting over positions. As Burhan pressed for Hamduk to replace his cabinet, pro-democracy forces responded on October 21, organizing a mass protest against the prospect of a military takeover. Overnight, on October 25, security forces detained Hamduk, several ministers, and other officials, and took control of state media. In November, Burhan reconstituted the Sovereign Council, replacing civilian members of the government with his own appointees. On November 21, at which point at least 40 protesters had been killed, Hamduk signed a political agreement with Burhan in what he said was an effort to avert more bloodshed and protect economic gains. The deal restored the Prime Minister to his position, but with the stipulation that a new cabinet of technocrats, rather than politicians, be formed. On January 3rd, the Prime Minister resigned, condemning the continued violence against protesters and acknowledging that his efforts to find consensus among Sudanese stakeholders had failed. Hamduk's resignation leaves the military in charge. Now, on October 25th, the Biden administration announced that it was pausing almost all assistance under the FY 2021 Economic Support Fund appropriation of approximately $700 million in security assistance and other forms of assistance to the Sudanese government. Humanitarian assistance, as I understand it, is not affected by the decision. U.S. officials say assistance to the government will not resume until there is an end to the violence and a restoration of civilian-led government 
that reflects the will of the people of Sudan. Is my statement fairly accurate? Based upon that, it would appear that over the last three years, number one, we looked at a proposal that would have been a three-year transition period. We're closing in on that now. During that time period, it would appear that all parties there seem to have an interest in moving forward, and yet internal strife appears to be the challenge. Is that a fair statement within their, the political realm of, uh, of Sudan? Based on that, are we choosing sides on, in this particular case? How do we work with both sides to try to find an, an, an end game? Senator, it seems to me that the way the Sudanese have characterized their current challenge is a model that we should follow. As you described, there was an agreement that the civilians and the military would move forward as partners in this transition process. That broke down because of the military's conduct. Uh, so, so the military obviously cannot be wished out of the political and economic system they've dominated for 30 years. So the way the Sudanese are now formulating uh, the approach is that they recognize the military must be a participant in the process in which all stakeholders need to redefine the role of the military. Every country needs a military to defend the borders, to defend the nation, to defend the sovereignty. Uh, the problem in Sudan has been uh, the military's overreach. Do we, have, do we have access and do we have ongoing communication with both sides in this particular case? Yes. And when would you consider the communications good communications, open communications? Yes, I would. I, 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 as you know, I've, I've traveled uh, twice uh, and spoken to leaders of the security forces, and I've also spoken to them on the phone, and our embassy regularly engages. So I would characterize our engagement across the board uh, with all Sudanese as, as constructive. Okay, and one last very quick question. What is the administration considering with respect to the $700 million in paused assistance to Sudan? We've come close to it, but we haven't answered the question yet. Thank you. Um, so in consultation with Congress so far and, uh, and with the interagency, we have uh, already looked to program roughly $100 million of that money uh, with uh, a focus on civil society. So um, working not directly with the government, but with civil society groups outside the government, private um, organizations, um, both in the, in the center of the country in Khartoum, but also in, in uh, regional and local areas, um, helping uh, them um, uh, with training and education um, on civics um, to better strengthen and prepare them for this eventual transition. Um, you know, as we've noted, this has been three decades of authoritarian rule that has left civil society um, really not in any shape. Uh, to be um, as active and a participant as it needs to be in this process. So, Thank you. My time has expired. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here today. Um, as we talk about the 2019 revolution, um, it's known in many quarters as the women's re revolution because about 90% of demonstrators were women who participated in that and had for many years played a prominent role in advocating against Bashir's brutal regime. Um, 
But unfortunately, as is often the case, women were sidelined from peace talks and they had to demand representation and inclusion in a transitional government. Um, Deputy Administrator Coleman, you talked about what we're doing to strengthen civilian leadership and capacity building among women. So can you speak to some of the particulars and highlight what we're doing to address the women, peace, and security requirements that say that women should be included in peace processes in areas like Sudan, which are um, trying to resolve conflict? Yes, thank you, Senator. Um, you're absolutely right. This is in no small part a women's revolution. And if you look at the television that carries coverage of street demonstrations still in Sudan today, you see women out front and center risking life and limb uh, to continue carrying the flame for uh, a better life for themselves and their children. Um, we are working uh, with women's groups across uh, much of the country. Um, as we have been for many, many years, we have um, uh, uh, relationships in many of the states um, where we've been working in a humanitarian context, where we have developed good relationships with uh, civil society organizations on the ground that have been partners in our humanitarian efforts. And uh, some of those groups are part of our uh, women, peace, and security efforts, too. Um, they have strong views on what should be happening. Their voices have not been heard, have not been included. Um, we are, as I noted, providing them with advocacy training, um, even with transportation money to help them uh, get to Khartoum to uh, engage in a broader discussion on um, peace building, um, making sure that they're connected with the UNITAMS facilitated efforts, um, uh, providing them with um, uh, both funding and training on media. I mentioned the woman uh, who has started the, her own media business. We're also funding a women's talk show in Sudan. You can think of it sort of Su Sudanese women meet the view. Um, it's women from different um, ethnicities, different demographic groups, young, old, across the country, sharing ideas on uh, what the future of the country might look like for them. So it's bringing lots of different viewpoints together. Um, so how specifically are we going to continue to promote the inclusion of women in the next stage of negotiations? I appreciate all of those civil society building efforts, but if we're talking about the negotiating table, are we demanding that in terms of our participation that women be included in that? Either one of you can respond to that, Assistant I'll, Secretary just, I'll turn to, to Assistant Secretary Fee, but I will just say absolutely, because they are such an important voice and presence, um, they, they themselves demand a seat at the table, and we will ensure that they're there. Good morning, Senator. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we have discussed this directly with the special representative of the Secretary General, who leads the UNITAMS effort. Uh, and he fully uh, supports uh, the goal of having women and has been meeting with women's groups um, and including them in the process that he's undertaking right now. So absolutely, that's a commitment on our side and uh, on the side of the international community. Well, thank you. I'm really pleased to hear that um, and hope that will continue. Just to switch gears a little bit, and I only have a few minute, few seconds left, but um, Russia obviously has... Um, 
refused to condemn the coup leaders. They've stuck to their playbook of blaming the West for the instability. What, what does Russia want to get out of Sudan? Senator, um, some of the details of our assessment there might be better handled in a different setting. Uh, but it's known that the Russians are interested in the port of Sudan. Mm -hmm. And I think generally we can see by Russian conduct globally uh, that they're interested in exploiting insecurity for tactical gain and financial gain. Thank you. Um, well, hopefully we will have the opportunity in a classified setting to address that question in further detail. Mr. Chairman, thank, thank you. you. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Assistant Secretary Fee, I'd like to start with you, if I might, and um, talk a bit about the Abraham Accords and the relationship to the Sudan. Um, I think, as you know, uh, the U.S. significantly advanced efforts to normalize relations between Arab nations and Israel uh, with respect to um, the Abraham Accords. In fact, four Arab nations signed up, including Sudan, who joined in January of 2021. Um, my sense is that the Abraham Accords present a great opportunity with these normalized relations, and my understanding is that Israel has been reaching out to Sudan in the wake of the coup to a number of stakeholders there to try to assist. Uh, my question to you is, does the Biden administration support Israel's attempt to reach out to work with Sudanese stakeholders, particularly in light of the normalization, <clears throat> excuse me, with the Abraham Accords? Thank you, Senator, for that question. Special Envoy Satterfield will be in Israel tomorrow uh, to discuss Israel's concerns and interests uh, in the region, including in Sudan. Uh, we agree with you. Um, it was a great prospect um, to apply the Abraham Accords to Sudan. But the normalization efforts that were underway were part of a negotiation with a civilian-led government. Now that that government is no longer in place, we don't feel it's appropriate <coughs> excuse me, to push forward at this time. But that's something we're keeping a close eye on for an opportunity to resume. And it would be helpful if Israel would use its influence uh, to encourage uh, the transition to go forward so then we can move forward on other important objectives like the Abraham Accords. Well, I, I would encourage you to look for those opportunities, uh, despite the fact that the original negotiating counterparts may have changed. Uh, I think Israel has the desire to work there, and I think we should be doing everything that we can to support it. Um, a question to both uh, Assistant Secretary Fee and Deputy Administrator Coleman. Uh, I'd like to talk about the economic support fund that was uh, allocated um, under the previous administration. $700 million in foreign assistance was uh, made available to Sudan for fiscal year 2021. After the coup that took place in 2021, uh, the Biden administration has halted, my understanding, has halted those funds. What is the plan moving forward with respect to those funds? How much has been spent so far? How much remains? And, and what would the plan be moving forward? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, so of the 700 million, we have um, looked to program 108 million of that uh, over the course of uh, the coming year. Um, <clears throat> much of it towards um, promoting and enhancing and strengthening civil society, but also in um, uh, standing up um, more um, uh, agricultural livelihoods work outside of the government. So all of that money is being spent outside the government. None of it is being spent with the government. We paused all of our programming and took a look 
and uh, uh, decided that there were a certain set of activities that we could continue outside the government. Going forward, we're now in a process of looking at the remainder of that money and determining what we can use efficiently, effectively, and productively in Sudan, both to um, uh, help the people of Sudan uh, to strengthen their um, prospects and to be a net positive in this um, transitional process, but not working with the government. And that is off the table. And if I understand correctly, then 108 of the 700 has been programmed. So you have a rather large balance left that you can continue to work with there. Well, I appreciate your business-like approach, as we've discussed uh, in the past, uh, in taking this in a stepwise fashion and making certain we get the most effective usage of those funds. Assistant Secretary Fee, can I come back to you now again to talk about Russia's efforts to strengthen their geopolitical foothold in Sudan? As you know, Sudan's a very um, strategically well-located place when you think about their access to the Red Sea and um, Russia's desire to continue to build their relationship. They've got a strong economic relationship, diplomatic relationship, military relationship with Sudan. Um, in November of this past year, 2021, General Burhan recommitted Sudan to the naval base deal that they struck with Russia to build a base there in, the port, of, in, in port Sudan, right there on the Red Sea. Uh, as the current crisis in Ukraine continues to unfold, I think it's very important for us to work with our friends and allies to push back on Russia's influence. And I know that the previous administration had worked hard to discourage Sudan from engaging with Russia in this matter. Where do you see our, our posture uh, unfolding here with respect to this? Thank you, Senator, for raising that important issue. Uh, the leaders of uh, Sudan's security forces have a choice. They can be the leaders who help Sudan complete this historic transition, or they can be the leaders that fail. Uh, we want a Sudan that has a partnership with the United States and with our like-minded partners in the world and not with Russia. Russia is the old Sudan, uh, and, and our efforts are designed to help Sudan at first for its own sake, reach uh, democracy and prosperity, and secondly, uh, take up its rightful role on the continent and in the international community, and that includes working with partners like us. So Thank that's you. undergirding our approach to this problem. No, I appreciate a very keen eye toward this. We know China's presence in Djibouti. We understand Russia's presence here. I think the strategic value of Africa is very clear and a, a very concentrated focus on our part to do just as you say uh, will be necessary going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank both of you for your service and testimony. Uh, last uh, May, uh, Senator Coons and I uh, visited Sudan uh, to tell both government leaders as well as activists uh, that the United States stood with them in the transition uh, toward democracy. Uh, we met with uh, General Burhan, who looked us in the eye and said he supported that transition toward democracy, that clearly he broke his word. Uh, more importantly, he broke his word to the people of Sudan. Uh, another person we met with was uh, the Minister of Justice, uh, Abdul Bari, who was a bright light uh, in the transition, a strong supporter of democracy, rule of law. As you know, he has resigned. Uh, and what he said about what happened in October is, Quote, what is happening now in Sudan is a military coup, unquote, unequivocal. I do think the United States has to say that out loud, too. And I agree with my colleagues who say that we need to do more to target individuals uh, who have been responsible with sanctions uh, and other tools at our uh, disposal. Uh, much has been said about the $700 million uh, in AID funding. I understand your answers with that. Clearly, we had to put that 
on hold. Of course, the big money is in the debt relief for Sudan. Uh, and after uh, Bushir was ousted and we had the peaceful revolution, um, international financial institutions, right, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, agreed to provide Sudan with debt relief. There's $76 billion in indebtedness uh, by Sudan. Uh, and the IMF and the World Bank have put some of the tranches of relief uh, on hold, uh, right now holding up uh, $650 million in anticipated funding, uh, and a $2.5 billion 39-month IMF loan program that was approved in June of 2021, and a $2 billion World Bank grant program are at risk. The United States obviously plays a very important role in both those international financial institutions. Are we using our leadership there to make it clear that we will not support additional debt relief to Sudan until Sudan moves forward again uh, toward democracy and meets those conditions? Assistant Secretary Fee, why don't we? Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Absolutely. In fact, uh, we were leaders in uh, early reaching out to the World Bank and to the IMF uh, to arrange this pause in assistance. Uh, and as you've noted, the figures you've provided, I have slightly different figures that were provided to me. But what, what matters is that they're big uh, and they are having an enormous impact. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to make clear that it, the United States and the international community would not have a normal relationship with Sudan if the transition was abandoned. So absolutely, that, that's our posture and policy uh, in the international financial institutions. Good. I mean, you would agree that's where our main leverage is at this point, right? Ab absolutely. I mean, it, the, it's, the scope is very significant. And there's an argument uh, that the military have their own uh, um, sources of income and that they're not directly affected. But if the economy collapses because of this major shock due to the withholding of this large-scale uh, amount of assistance, uh, it will engulf their commercial interests as well. Got it. Um, just a, a, another question, Assistant Secretary uh, Fee. With respect to the opposition, we have a very broad-based civilian opposition, uh, and many, of course, are still uh, protesting in the streets. Uh, they've been subject to beatings and violence and killings. Uh, as we support the UNITAMS process, which I understand we do, correct? Uh, are, are you going to make sure that all the voices of the opposition are included in that process, uh, including those uh, who don't want to have any dialogue right now with the military government, uh, which is understandable? Uh, how are you going to make sure that those voices, the opposition, are included in whatever process UNITAM moves forward with? Thank you, Senator. We're in the happy position of uh, dealing with Sudanese uh, civilian stakeholders and voices that will demand uh, to be part of defining the future of the country. Uh, the, my understanding from the special representative of the Secretary General is that uh, all uh, uh, groups that are uh, committed to this change have agreed to sit and, and consult with him and talk to him. Some of them have not wanted to make it public. Uh, but everyone is looking uh, for uh, how to build a collective path, uh, collective pressure, uh, and identify a common vision and common ground. I think unanimity is probably not feasible, probably not feasible in any political system, 
uh, but certainly not there. Uh, but definitely, uh, when I have had the chance to speak to Sudanese people, women, youth activists in the resistance committees, families of those who have been martyred, uh, they're all, uh, they all share a lot of uh, uh, concerns and interests and plans for the future. And I think there's a real possibility to knit that all together. So that's why we are trying to play a supporting role to UNITAMs and to work with other critical regional actors such as uh, the African Union, which as you'll recall played an important role in 2019 uh, to help broker the constitutional declaration. Mm -hmm. So we're committed to making sure those voices and we're using the programmatic resources that the deputy administrator has described to help build the capacity so that they can engage effectively in that, in that transition discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Coons. Um, thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and uh, Chairman Menendez, thank you for um, convening this hearing and for ensuring that Sudan remains high on this committee's agenda at this critical time to see uh, a full committee hearing on the ongoing crisis in Sudan with a robust participation from Democrats and Republicans is genuinely encouraging. Assistant Secretary Feed, it's great to see you again. Um, thank you for your service and your focus on this critical issue. And Deputy Administrator Coleman, good to see you as, uh, as well. Um, I've worked hard over recent years to support Sudan's peaceful revolution, the inspiring um, civilian-led nationwide uprising that um, as one of the most successful grassroots pro-democracy movements in recent years actually overthrew Overthrow a, overthrew a, a brutal dictator um, who had repressed the people of Sudan for decades and um, committed genocide. Um, we've worked hard on the appropriation of over a billion dollars in both economic aid and as my friend and colleague, uh, Senator Van Hollen was just referencing, important debt relief to help support a transition to civilian government. Um, we've made a significant down payment uh, on a democratic future for Sudan. Uh, but I'm gravely concerned um, that this transition is badly off track and without um, active diplomatic engagement and some strong and decisive action by the United States, this transition may effectively be dead. Um, to live up to the commitments that we've made to the Sudanese people to support their aspirations, we have to take a greater leadership role, and I'm grateful for the steps you've been taking, Madam Assistant Secretary. Um, as a number of my colleagues have asked, um, a lack of accountability for atrocities committed in Darfur and throughout Sudan, um, the killing of protesters in recent years, and the recent coup, all of this has established a pattern of impunity for military leaders um, who kill and harm unarmed civilians and peaceful protesters. We've seen that um, continue in recent weeks as the military has systematically arrested and even assassinated some of the most effective community organizers and obstructed injured protesters from getting needed medical care. Uh, I've introduced the Sudan Democracy Act to sanction those involved in these activities and others who undermine democracy and human rights and the networks that sustain them. And the administration's publicly stated it'll hold military authorities responsible. Um, what does this mean in practice? Um, how will the U.S. hold them accountable? Um, and what does your previous comment that the security forces are not monolithic mean for a path forward where we could somehow secure a transition to a wholly civilian government? Thank you, Senator. Uh, first of all, for your engagement and involvement in this important issue uh, and for your assessment of the, of the challenges that we face. Uh, I do believe, I said to the chairman, uh, this hearing is a terrific way uh, to, to reinforce uh, the administration's diplomacy 
and signal uh, to all the parties of Sudan that we are with the civilians, we are with this uh, uh, transition, and uh, it needs to move forward if they want to have any kind of partnership with us. Uh, and so that's been basically the bottom line, how we implement it. Uh, we've talked, uh, Senator Coons, about using authorities that exist. We've talked about developing new authorities. And we've talked, uh, we're, we're looking very hard right now at non-traditional methods of pressure, uh, particularly uh, in terms of, uh, for example, the illicit gold uh, mining that takes place. Uh, to tr and we're also looking at the many enterprises that are owned by security forces. So there's a lot of active effort underway to augment the already significant pressure that we've discussed uh, from the suspension of both debt relief and, and uh, bilateral and multilateral assistance. Well, as the chairman mentioned, um, if you need additional um, authorities, please uh, do communicate that to this committee. I'm concerned the military will simply organize um, elections uh, that are sham elections in 2023 that they'll use to legitimize their rule next year. Um, how are we working with our regional partners, um, our allies, um, and relevant Sudanese stakeholders to prevent that outcome, uh, which um, thousands and thousands of civilians have taken to the streets to prevent and, and that they have consistently spoken out against and rejected? That's a valid concern. However, uh, the military leaders have claimed that they want international support for those elections. If we, uh, we want to be in a position to provide that support, and of course, that would be geared towards credible and transparent elections. Uh, and also the Sudanese people, as we've seen, uh, I, I'm confident would not participate in any sort of Potemkin uh, type election. Uh, we uh, talked earlier, Senator Coons, and I think it's worth emphasizing about the importance of making clear, particularly to our Arab partners, and Israel who engage in Sudan, that, that the prospect of security from uh, a military-led government is, a, is, a, is not a, a, a true uh, uh, reality. It, it cannot, that cannot work, Sudan's history shows that. The, the fact that the security forces are split is not necessarily a positive uh, uh, situation, but it does mean uh, that they, like the civilians, uh, uh, because there are fractures and fissures, uh, uh, may be unwilling um, collectively uh, to do a, a severe uh, repression and a severe um, crackdown. That's what we've been trying to say to them. Don't go that path. Don't be the leaders that lost Sudan. Be the leaders that affected this transition. Um, so it, it, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky balance, frankly. Well, there's a number of us who look forward to working with you on that. Um, I, I've just submitted a nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize for Sudan's resistance committees and the Central Committee of Sudan Doctors. I hope you will work to make sure that they are uh, part of the center of any political process. I look forward, um, uh, Deputy Administrator Coleman, to hearing an update about how the administration is planning to leverage the $700 million in frozen uh, funds, and I hope that uh, we will consult in advance as you craft uh, the broader framework for the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit um, later this year. With that, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Uh, thank you, and thank you, Senator Coons, for your work on the Sudan. I, I recall when uh, we were in the midst of trying to decide on uh, the pathway forward on recognition and uh, the question of those who uh, had been hurt uh, Americans and others who had been hurt in the past, and we were in quite an engagement in that process, and we thought there were better days ahead. And so uh, we remain desirous of that, but 
really cautious uh, here as we move forward. So thank you for your, your leadership in this regard. Senator Booker is with us virtually. Uh, thank you, Chairman Menendez. I've really appreciated the conversation and the range of urgent issues that my colleagues have brought up uh, from the critical um, necessity to have women leaders at the table all the way to um, concerns about the Abraham Accords and, and how we can continue to see some stability and progress. Um, I want to focus my my concerns and questions really on just one area. There, there is a real crisis in the horn on everything from the violence uh, as well as just the severe lack of uh, medical uh, care that's going on there. Uh, one thing I do have uh, uh, even a more particular concern with is just the severe state of food insecurity uh, within not just uh, Sudan, uh, but a number of the countries in the region, uh, South Sudan, Ethiopia, they're all facing uh, what is this uh, uh, terrific imminent prospect of, uh, of extreme famine-like conditions. Um, and famine is not just for the, 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 the sort of moral urgency of human life, but it also has a, has a multiplier effect in the destabilizing effects it can have when it comes to the security situation of these nations and how it could spill over and be destabilizing to other nations, especially if uh, more refugee crises are, are triggered. Uh, this is a region of great importance, obviously, to the United States, the whole horn. Uh, it's a critical to our security interests, uh, our dealing with counterterrorism with Al-Shabaab, its proximity to crucial uh, international shipping lanes through the Red Sea, uh, and obviously uh, key military uh, uh, facilities there. So I just want to ask, and the, 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 anyone on the panel could take this for me, uh, what is the administration doing specifically to help the millions of people who are facing starvation in Sudan and frankly um, uh, facing it throughout the Horn of Africa? Thank you, Senator Booker. That's um, such a critical and important issue and one that uh, we are dealing with um, every single day. Um, as you note, the Horn of Africa is experiencing tremendous instability and food security, and this is a, con uh, a consequence not only of, of conflict, uh, but also of drought and other uh, natural disasters, including locusts. I mean, it's, it's under enormous stress across the whole region. Um, right now, there are um, uh, more than a million people in need of um, food security, uh, food assistance, because they face um, uh, very uh, significant food insecurity in that um, in in Sudan. Um, there are also, um, of course, refugees who have left South Sudan uh, for Sudan and are now heading back to South Sudan. So you've got the compounding effect of, of people moving from one insecure environment to another and, um, and the challenges that puts on the whole system. But we are working with our partners on the ground, namely the World Food Program, to meet the food uh, needs of the people. Um, we're working on some basic health um, uh, and livelihoods work and addressing the uh, most severe needs of malnutrition. But as you've noted, um, these are... Um, integrated problems that humanitarian assistance um, only addresses at the surface and underneath we need to really get at the root causes and, um, and that I think has been the basis of this conversation, trying to put the country on a better path and play its important stabilizing role in the region that it should, uh, should be playing. Thank you. Well, if I could just uh, drill a little bit deeper down, because I've been in touch with the 
UN World Food Program, uh, they have issued an emergency funding request. They're, we're short uh, to meet the global need uh, from Afghanistan to the Horn of Africa, uh, billions of dollars. And they are saying quite plainly, in order to prevent tens of millions of people, including millions of children in countries around the globe, and particularly in the Horn, uh, from starving to death in just the coming months, uh, we need this emergency supplemental funding. And something that is, it seems to be you're alluding to is that um, this kind of mass starvation um, uh, would make all of the situations regarding the politics far more complex, as well as we are seeing again in that region of Africa, uh, the, uh, the, the continued destabilization being caused by, uh, uh, by these challenges that are faced, as you said, from, from uh, climate change issues to uh, COVID-related issues to the military destabilization. So I guess just my pointed question is, do you agree that providing this funding, filling this funding gap with the World Food Program should be a top priority if we really are serious about meeting uh, the political instability of Sudan as well as other areas in the Horn. Yes, um, yes, thank you, Senator Booker. I mean, I spend my day looking across the world and I see crisis in Afghanistan, I see food crisis in the Horn of Africa and in West Africa, the Sahel. I see enormous needs in South America with um, migrants and refugees flowing across the region. And the World Food Program is providing and, and UNHCR resources um, across the board, and they're stretched. They're stretched very, very thin. Um, so I would, um, of course, be an advocate for more humanitarian assistance, uh, given all of these um, simultaneous uh, crises that we're facing and uh, the integrated nature of, of many of these uh, crises, particularly in the Horn. Thank you. Well, I'm grateful if you're saying that. You could look at Burkina Faso one of our globe's poorest uh, nations, its political instability uh, right now and the, the extreme poverty there. These issues are very much interrelated. And I'm grateful for Senator Menendez and Senator Coons's leadership in trying to help us to meet this massive gap. It is uh, clearly proven that dollars invested in the World uh, Food Program, uh, helping people where they are, um, uh, to feed them where they are, actually save uh, multiples of the resources necessary if those famines end up triggering uh, a crisis in migration and more. This is a wise investment of money for political stability, for national security, not to mention uh, the humanitarian, the real human crisis of millions of children that will die if the U.S. fails to act. So I appreciate your testimony, and, and I thank you, Chairman, uh, thank for you. the time. Thank you. Senator Risch. Uh, just briefly, Mr. Chairman, and either one of you can address this. While this meeting was going on, we were served with a congressional notification by the State Department regarding an expenditure of ten and a half million dollars for something I, I don't understand. Uh, it talks about uh, economic uh, support funds, and uh, it, the bureau uh, that's going to do it is Democracy, Rights, and Labor. And it refers to expenditures supporting the civilian-led transitional government, which I understand doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I assume one of you knows something about this. I thought we suspended. Uh, I think all of us agreed that we ought to be suspending. And now we get served with this notice that there's going to be an expenditure. What can you tell us about that? Uh, thank you, Senator. I do not have the notice in front of me. 
Um, and we all agree that we do not want to be providing any financial support uh, to the government, but we are providing support to civil society and others. And I'm aware of a, of a very important uh, grant uh, undertaken by the Bureau of Democracy and Human Rights to support accountability, justice and accountability, and to provide assistance to Sudanese human rights activists who are trying to document uh, atrocities. Uh, so that's the immediate program that I'm aware of, but I would assume if it's a different program, it would similarly be designed to complement the programs that the Deputy Administrator has discussed to help strengthen the capacity of Sudanese civilians uh, to tackle the problems in their country, and the money would not be going uh, to the government. Uh, you had made reference to this woman who had started the uh, uh, a media company over there. Would it be going in that direction, perhaps? That, that was a USAID-funded program. The DRL-CN um, you're referring to is a State Department program, so I think it would be different, um, but along the same types of lines uh, with a focus on human rights as well. Yeah, we're going to need some more clarification on this, Mr. Chairman. This is pretty vague, and uh, with everything we've heard today, I'm really, really reluctant to, to talk about spending more money there until we have a really clear direction where we're going. Understood. Well, uh, Madam Secretary, if you would go back to the department and tell them that we both need, I, I haven't seen the CN, so uh, we, we both need clarification because there is a hesitancy on spending here unless we know clearly purpose and recipient at the end of the day and obviously a, a pathway forward. So, uh, so uh, to the extent that the department has a good argument to make for whatever this is, we we'll, we'll look forward to hearing it. Uh, Senator Risch, are you okay? Okay. Uh, I have. Senator Romney just logged on. Okay. So I understand that Senator Romney is now with us virtually. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I hope you can hear me. We can. Good. Thank you. Uh, excuse me if, uh, if I'm going to ask a question here, which has been asked already, but uh, I was at another hearing and just was able to join this more recently. Uh, I, I'm interested in, in uh, getting a sense of why it is we're seeing so many coups, if you will. This is not the, uh, obviously, the one and only. There seems to be a, a, a crescendo in the number of places where military action is replacing uh, democratically elected uh, leaders. Uh, that's obviously something which is very much not in the interest of the people of those nations, nor is it in, in the interest of, of global peace. Um, one question is uh, to either of the panelists, uh, are Russia or China playing a role uh, either in, uh, in encouraging uh, these actions or are they playing a role in sustaining the military uh, uh, juntas or, or leaders after a coup occurs? What, what role are they playing with regards to these, uh, uh, these increasing number of coups that we're seeing, if any? Senator, thank you for flagging this troubling issue, which concerns us all. It's clear uh, that Russia is playing a negative role, uh, particularly in the Sahel, uh, but also in Sudan. Uh, they're exploiting uh, fissures and tensions and insecurities for their own political and economic advantage. Uh, I think this issue could be uh, helpfully discussed in another setting, uh, but I do want to flag uh, that they are uh, a player of concern for us. I also wanted to more broadly address your question. I think we're seeing in some cases the e economic impact of the COVID pandemic, which has um, really disrupted economic growth uh, in countries that are already struggling uh, as, and some of the poorest countries in the world. 
And we're also seeing fatigue by publics uh, from poor governance, including corruption, uh, so, uh, as well as insecurity. So those are some of the factors that we're looking at as we try and uh, uh, assess uh, the changing landscape in Africa and make sure we respond appropriately. Uh, I'm wondering as well whether um, uh, in uh, in Africa, but also in other parts of the world where where we're seeing actions of this nature, uh, whether whether we're able to provide to the uh, newly formed democratic uh, governments and in some cases governments that have been there for a long period of time, some assessment of the risk of uh, of a coup occurring, and some actions to take to uh, to make it less likely that something of that nature will occur. And and uh, because, of course, there, we always have sanctions when bad things happen. Uh, uh, clearly, everybody would tell us that writing checks to these governments would help them out, but that's not something we can do indefinitely. Uh, and, and so I, I wonder, do we have an effective strategy to make it less likely that Russia or others that are uh, playing a malevolent role uh, would be less effective? Do we have a strategy to encourage uh, and strengthen nations such that they can withstand the uh, inevitable draw of authoritarianism uh, when a newly elected um, uh, government is, is put in place? And again, for, for you, Assistant Secretary, or, or, uh, or your colleague. Senator, uh, you all helped us out by giving us the Global Fragility Act. Uh, and the administration is working uh, carefully and quickly uh, to try and mobilize those resources uh, with, and, that, and to try and uh, adopt that new format and new approach uh, precisely to get at what you're discussing. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, you'll see real action on the ground uh, to implement uh, the, the goals and ambitions laid out in the Global Fragility Act, which were designed precisely to address the concerns you've outlined. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I return the time to you. Uh, thank you, Senator Romney. Uh, one last uh, set of questions here. The Sudan Tribune reported today that the Executive Secretary of the Intergovernmental Authority on Development was in Khartoum to discuss, quote, to discuss with the Sudanese stakeholders the mediation they plan to launch to end the crisis, close quote. Up until now, uh, UNITAM has uh, the mandate from the UN to provide support to Sudan during its political transition to democratic rule. It was the only forum for dialogue to end the current crisis. So, uh, Madam Secretary, is the report on EGAD's involvement accurate, and how might the efforts by EGAD complicate UNITAM's facilitated process? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I think that's sloppy drafting. Uh, my understanding that the Secretary General, with whom we have a good and constructive working relationship was there to see how EGAD could support the UNITAM's effort, and that EGAD, as you know, is nested under the AU, uh, nested under the uh, under the UN. Uh, so how all three bodies uh, could help with this transition process. So I, I think that's a mischaracterization in the press report. Okay, so then this is uh, uh, EGAD actually helping UNITAM. All right. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, what leverage do uh, we and other actors have uh, in the region to press the Sudanese military to participate in good faith from the administration's perspective? I think uh, 
as we've discussed, we have mobilized enormous economic pressure and made clear our position and the position of like-minded friends in the international community. Uh, and I know that these, uh, the, the sort of uh, phenomenal impact uh, which the World Bank discussed when we were in Riyadh at the Friends of Sudan meeting, where they compared the economic shock to the system as analogous to the political shock uh, by the events on October 25th, uh, that, that that economic pressure is getting the attention of security leaders. Uh, the discussion we've had here today, the public statements made um, by members of Congress are also getting the attention of security leaders. And thirdly, I, I believe our diplomacy, uh, particularly our engagement of traditional partners of the Sudan Sudanese security forces is also getting their attention. You so know, I often find types. that uh, when we talk about economic shock, those who are in power, in this case by force, often don't end up feeling that part of the shock. The people do, but they don't. And the question is, uh, how do we make them feel that reality uh, as well? Because uh, I find that uh, coups, military juntas, dictators, don't really care about the, the hurt of their people. Um, finally, if uh, Sudan's transition to democracy fails, and we are all here to try to ensure it doesn't, it doesn't fail, but if it does, what are the implications for the U.S. strategic interests in the Horn of Africa? Which countries stand to win if the transition fails? My own view is that nobody wins, uh, neither the Sudanese, uh, nor their neighbors, nor the region, uh, nor uh, the continent. Um, and uh, there may be some governments, we've discussed Russia here today, who uh, get tactical gains or wins uh, if, there's, if there's a collapse of the Sudanese state, uh, but the humanitarian consequences uh, would be overwhelming and it would contribute mightily uh, to destabilization in Northern Africa, in Eastern Africa, and, uh, and, and probably spreading south. Uh, so uh, all of our efforts are focused on preventing that outcome because of the negative consequences. Yeah, well, I think there, there may have been some countries who were happy to see the coup take place. And the question is, if they were happy to see the coup take place, then what is the consequences uh, if, if, in fact, the, the, the nation fails uh, at the end of the day? Uh, to those who ha were happy to see the coup take place, they must have made calculations as to what they think is the benefit of that. And uh, it would seem to me that we should be focusing on some of those countries to give them a clear message that, in fact, their calculation is wrong. So uh, with that, I'm sorry. Can we take Angela and go for before we start the second panel? Yeah. Okay. With that, well, the thanks uh, of the committee for this panel. Uh, this panel uh, is uh, excused. We appreciate your insights. And... Um, we will uh, call up our s second panel. Thank you very much. As we um, I'm going to introduce our second panel. My understanding is that there is a vote going on. And so uh, we will avail ourselves uh, of uh, what would be a natural uh, break to try to vote and come back. Um, 
Before introducing our witnesses for the second panel, I ask unanimous consent to enter into the record written testimony from Amnesty International. Without objection, so ordered. Let me welcome the members of our next panel. Joining us via teleconference from Brussels is Dr. Comfort Iro, President and CEO of the International Crisis Group. She joined the organization as West Africa Project Director in 2001 and rose to become the Africa Program Director, and then in January of 2021, Interim Vice President. Dr. Iro was appointed Crisis Group's President and CEO in December of 2021. Uh, she has spent her career working in conflict-affected countries and related policy. Uh, as her, in between her two tenures at the Crisis Group, she served as Deputy Africa Program Director for the International Center for Transitional Justice and prior to that, political affairs officer and policy advisor to the special representative of the Secretary General as part of the UN mission in Liberia. She has a PhD from the London School of Economics, the University of London, is also the chair of the board of the Rift Valley Institute, sits on the editorial board of various journals, including international peacekeeping, and we welcome her remotely. Also with us on the second panel is M. Joseph Tucker, senior expert for the Greater Horn of Africa, the United States Institute of Peace. Mr. Tucker is a senior expert from the Greater Horn of Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace, where he focuses primarily on Sudan and South Sudan. Prior to joining the Institute, he worked at USAID for four and a half years, most recently a senior advisor for democracy, conflict, and governance in the Office of South Sudan and South Sudan Programs. In 2013, Mr. Tucker worked in Juba, South Sudan for Deloitte Consulting as a policy and research advisor to the Minister of Cabinet Affairs in the government of South Sudan. From 2009 to 13, he served in the office of the U.S. Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan, the Department of State, including as negotiations team leader. He was a member of the U.S. government's observation team for Sudan 2010's national elections and 2011 South Sudan referendum travel widely in both countries and the region. So thank you both uh, to uh, our witnesses. Uh, Dr. Iro, congratulations on your recent promotion. Uh, we're going to take a brief recess. There is a vote going on. We will return immediately after that vote, and we will begin the testimony. With that, um, the hearing is in recess. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order um, with the uh, thanks to our witnesses for their forbearance as we um, had a vote. Uh, let me start with Dr. Iroh, uh, and then uh, we, will, um, we will move to um, Mr. Tucker. Dr. Iroh? Good morning. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rich, and distinguished members of the committee. My name is Comfort Ero, and I am the President and CEO of the International Crisis Group. Previously, I served as the organization's Africa Program Director, and I spent my professional and academic life focusing on peace and security issues in Africa. The International Crisis Group is a global organization committed to the prevention, mitigation, and resolution of deadly violent conflict. We cover over 50 conflict countries around the world and our presence in Sudan dates back more than 20 years. I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak to you about the deteriorating situation in Sudan today and how the United States and others can help support the country. 
Sudan is at a dangerous crossroads. Once again, the military has turned its back on the demands of the Sudanese people and violently seized power. The coup on October the 25th brought a sudden halt to a civil, civilian military co coalition that since 2019 has been charged with steering Sudan towards elections and full civilian rule. It was a major reversal in a transition that brought hope to so many in the Horn of Africa and beyond. The transition that was interrupted in October followed 30 years of rule by the notorious strongman Omar al-Bashir. Following Bashir's ouster and under heavy pressure, the military agreed to an August 17th constitutional declaration under which the country would be governed by a hybrid civilian military coalition for 39 months leading up to elections. In defiance of the United States and others who warned them against doing so, the general for civilians. In the meantime, the Sudanese across the country have taken to the streets to signal their revulsion at the military's power grab. In response, the security forces have repeatedly fired into the crowd, killing dozens. However, there is evidence to suggest that the generals have gravely miscalculated their position. Since the coup, Sudan's mobilized youthful population have again shown its strength and courage by mobilizing millions of Sudanese to take to the streets and to send a clear signal to the generals. Getting the transition back on track would serve both the people of Sudan's democratic aspirations and the interest of the United States and other regional and international actors in this strategically important Horn of Africa. As one of Sudan's most important external partners, the United States is well positioned to support efforts to reverse the military's power grab and set Sudan back on its transitional path. The United States should press the generals to immediately halt their repeated use of violence against protesters and coordinate targeted sanctions to hold them to account. With its partners, the United States should make clear that the generals will face consequences, including assets freeze and travel ban, if they continue to kill unarmed demonstrators or obstruct progress towards elections more broadly. The United States has already signaled its backing for efforts to stimulate negotiations among the generals and civilian groups. The United States should warn the generals against taking participants measures that could derail these potential talks including reframing from unilaterally appointing a new prime minister. Should it further insist that these talks, it should further in insist that these talks have, are maximally inclusive. The 2019 power sharing agreement should be a blueprint for a compromise that should restore civilian military governance and lead to elections. In the immediate aftermath of the military takeover, the United States suspended 700 million in assistance to Sudan. This was the right step. The United States should make clear that this support will not resume unless the generals accept a return towards elections. The United States should also advance efforts to repurpose some of its support to civil society and also work with partners, including the United Nations, to offer direct assistance to Sudan's long-suffering people. Many on, Sudan, on the Sudanese streets perceive some external actors, 
namely Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia as tacitly back in military rule. Special Envoy Satterfield should be well positioned to engage these actors and urge them to constructively use their privileged relationships with Sudan's generals to push for a return to civilian-led transitional process. With the welcome appointment of a new ambassador to Khartoum, the United States could play a key role in marshalling a coalition of actors within and outside Sudan that can steer the country back to path to elections. The military's power grab has derailed a transition that was an inspiration well beyond Sudan and could still be an inspiration. The world and the United States should stand with the people of Sudan um, to ensure a more accountable government. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to testify before the Senate. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Tucker. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, thank you for the opportunity to testify on the situation in Sudan. I am a senior expert at the U.S. Institute of Peace, although the views expressed here are my own. Sudan is complex, but this should not mask simple truths. There was a coup in October 2021. The political transition, hard won through nonviolent struggle, was fundamentally disrupted. Its political settlement based on a civilian military partnership was broken. As Sudanese and the international community plot a way forward, it is critical to examine lessons from the transitional period. My written testimony outlines lessons based on analysis of stakeholders and key thematic areas of the transition. Given the importance of political pathways to address the current situation, I will focus first on lessons to inform them and any potential U.S. or U.N. assistance to them. Many political processes lack clarity on a preferred end state. This is not the case in Sudan. Civilian groups appear to agree that a fully democratic state is needed with security forces absent from non-security arenas. The U.S. should embrace this end state. However, it is the process to get there that needs a clear strategy bolstered by coordinated international engagement. Many agree that political processes should be Sudanese-led. There are Sudanese processes that are well-constructed and are likely to result in a sustainable agreement, and there are Sudanese processes that are not. Sudanese recognize this and are wary of blanket international acceptance of any Sudanese-led process. Any process can be made more inclusive, especially by involving women, youth, and other civic actors. But if inclusivity is symbolic and a process is not grounded in the views of civilians, the bitterness it creates can cripple support for outcomes. Lastly, it is imperative that violence against civilians stop or will prevent a political solution. The international community must take measures beyond words to halt it. However, international reactions to violence must not put undue pressure on civilians to overly compromise for the sake of a quick, perhaps false peace. Creating safe spaces for citizens to refine positions and engage political parties and leadership on their views is urgently needed, and the U.S. can help with this. I will now offer some thoughts on the suspension of assistance, aligning diplomacy and assistance, the security sector, and sanctions. As others noted, much U.S. assistance to Sudan's government was halted after the coup. A scenario for resumption is when violence against civilians has stopped and there is enforceable decision and progress on a fully, a fully civilian government with benchmarks set by civilians themselves. It may be tempting to restart assistance at the first sign of improvement, 
but care should be taken to ensure that this is not premature. Having to suspend assistance again or withstand a period where assistance remains but the situation worsens can dent the credibility of the U.S. approach. The suspension provides the U.S. a rare opportunity to interrogate the aims of assistance and refine a strategy. This strategy should be organized around facilitating, supporting, and consolidating a genuine transition. Key to this is better aligning U.S. political efforts with development assistance. There are times when diplomacy can smartly reinforce assistance, particularly for democracy, human rights, conflict mitigation efforts, and vice versa. Lastly, a U.S. all-of-government integrated Sudan democracy strategy is needed. I offer concrete suggestions for this in my written testimony and how it can be tied to existing legislation and this administration's democracy agenda. It is right for the U.S. to engage citizen security sector actors, but this should be grounded in a view of a civilian government and state. The U.S. can also analyze lessons from its engagement with the previous National Congress Party regime, particularly on how it did or did not utilize incentives and disincentives. It is understandable that some call for sanctions because they are a powerful tool to translate condemnation into action. They must be applied smartly and be part of a clear strategy. The argument that sanctions negatively impact dialogue through hardening positions or stroke violence needs to be ground-truthed. The argument is often made based on assumptions instead of objective analysis. In conclusion, the U.S. and international community can and should avoid a neutral stance on Sudan. There was a coup, and it is not possible to return to the pre-coup dispensation. A new constitutional order is needed, and Sudan will not be stable until there is a civilian government and the proper role of the security sector is firmly decided and implemented. The onus is on Sudanese to achieve their goals, but the U.S. has a duty to nurture civilian-led, nonviolent democratic change at a time when it is surely in short global supply. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you both for your testimony. Let me start off. Uh, Dr. Eero, uh, can Sudan's transition uh, be salvaged? Uh, what do we need from your perspective uh, to put things back on track? Thank you very much, Senator Menendez. Um, yes, um, it can be salvaged, and the people of Sudan themselves have articulated clearly the steps that need to be taken to ensure that. I think key will be keeping your consistent um, line that you started to articulate here today about supporting the, um, getting Sudan back on track, supporting the transition, making sure that the military do pull back um, from, their, from their entrenched position um, of derailing the process, making sure that they step back from the current course that they're taking. Um, the, the Sudanese military power has been held power um, in the past, as you know, um, for 52 of Sudan's 65 um, years of independence. Um, so it's not surprising that they've taken um, a very hard line entrenched position as well. But working with the Sudanese people, um, making sure you have a very firm line also on on dealing with the con on dealing with the consequences, and making it clear to the military that there are consequences for their own um, intervention into the civil political life. 
um, has to be a very firm line. Getting coordinated um, response from your international um, um, allies, um, the Africa Union, particularly the region, making sure there's a clear understanding of what stability means for the country, making it very clear to everybody that there is no place in Sudan for military um, rule in the country, and making sure also um, that the region is aligned in understanding that, I think is going to be key to getting um, Sudan back on track and getting the, the, the transition back towards the path that was started um, in, 2019, in 2019, and then getting it towards a transition. But we do need a co coordinated, um, concerted action, both within the United States, between the United States and its international actors, and particularly um, in the region, um, to, to get the country back on track. And in that coordination that you refer to, what, what steps would you like the U.S. and like-minded countries to take to increase pressure on the Sudanese military leader to yield power to a civilian government? Um, I think some of your opening statements, um, Senator Menendez, started to articulate that. I think um, you also began to articulate that there will be clear consequences for the security um, forces as well. I think that's an, an important message, that the military seeks legitimacy. Um, it seeks engagement with international actors. It also recognizes that it can't, um, it can't govern um, without the support of, of civilians as well. So that already gives you an entry point as well. And I think then being consistent um, in terms of the pressure um, that is to be applied um, to the country. There's a very narrow window now to begin to ensure that the, the military understands um, the nature of the pressure that, that can be applied. So, for example, the step that you've taken already um, at the level of the United um, at States, in, you know, has triggered already um, an understanding that the military has heavily miscalculated um, in its own actions as well. I think that the weak link right now is between um, the, the, the international actors and the wider regional community. And you've already pointed out in your previous session that a lot of work is, is being taken um, to work with the, with the Gulf countries and Egypt and making sure that they stay in the room and be, be coordinated in, in their steps, I think is going to be the key to getting, the, to getting um, Sudan um, stabilized. Well, there will be no legitimacy for the military unless they move towards back towards a transition to a civilian government, and there will be no assistance from my perspective, uh, at least uh, not in any way that would be helpful to them uh, unless we, we have a change. And Mr. Tucker, what, what type of programmatic activities would be the most impactful when it comes to supporting the democratic aspirations of the Sudanese people at this time? Thank you for the question, uh, Mr. Chairman. I think we need to take a quick uh, look at assistance to civil society, to political parties, legislative development, the suite of, of things that we all know well that is encompassed by democracy, human rights, and governance support is desperately needed. I want to underline here that I've seen in my career, both at the State Department and USAID, that sometimes that support to civil society and other critical um, governance actors uh, is not necessarily supported in real time substantively by sometimes our diplomacy and international diplomacy. What I mean by that is at times when diplomatic and political solutions 
uh, might not be evident or very difficult, it's easy to say we should do assistance to civil society, to civilian actors. I certainly don't want to sort of downplay the support to that, to those critical actors. They are critical to the way forward. But I think we need the development of sort of a detailed strategy on how diplomacy and assistance can better work together on, on these things. I think I have to say here that that requires an enormous amount of technical expertise and staff across the board at state mm -hmm. uh, and USAID. And, and that's possible, um, but it's difficult, uh, both in Khartoum and here in Washington, D.C. Let me ask you, uh, in this regard, what benchmarks then should we uh, expect to be met before the U.S. resumes assistance? Why are those benchmarks important? Um, they're important, frankly, because they're very difficult to determine. It's, it's easy to say we need progress toward a civilian-led government. I think that some people in the international community got sort of hung up on that civilian-led government. I think that the government that happened during the transition um, was actually led by the military. I think what people on the streets and resistance committees are looking for is really full, unimpeded executive power held by the prime minister and the cabinet by civilians. So perhaps that assistance should start before you get that fully um, in-line civilian government. But I think there needs to be really enforceable directives and progress toward that fully civilian government and state um, that are enforceable and benchmarks set by civilians themselves and that are agreed to by what right now is a very broad um, group of civilian actors. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Iroh, uh, when it comes to returning Sudan to a path that would lead to democracy, who are the potential spoilers, uh, including foreign countries? Well, <laughs> Senator, every spoiler is also um, part of the solution, um, is, is the way I would like to characterize it. Um, and of course, at the top of the, of the, of the, of the podium um, is, the, is the military. And whether we, we like it or not, we have to find a way in which to engage with the military. But it, but it shouldn't be engagement um, that sets aside, as, as you rightly um, pointed out, um, that sets aside the demands um, that the civilians have articulated for, for a number of, of, of years as well. Um, so there's the military and the civilian um, leadership as well um, is, is, is crucial to that. Um, I don't want to use the, the terminology um, spoiler. Um, as I said, every spoiler is crucial um, to getting us to where we are. Um, the other, there are other important um, players, um, armed groups as well, um, that, are, that are crucial um, to, to knitting back a very complex and complicated country as well. Um, there are a number of regional countries that have tacitly um, sort of given a nod um, to, to the coup um, who articulate or claim to express their desire to see stability um, in Sudan. And we've got to make sure that we all have a clear understanding of what stability um, for Sudan um, means today. And there's only one um, stability for Sudan, which is to get it back on that transitional roadmap to get it back to that inspirational um, revolution that we started to see back in 2019 and to make sure um, that that path towards democratization um, that was embedded um, in, the, in the peace agreement in 2019 is articulated as well. 
So um, again, Senator, I, I understand the way in which you want to characterize it, but there are those who we consider spoilers are also crucial um, to getting us back um, or to getting Sudan back on the, the right track as well. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your diplomatic response to that. Uh, the reality is, is that we would hope spoilers would be empowerers and not spoilers, uh, and they would be part of uh, the solution. But some of them have played the role of spoiler already uh, to this, uh, to this uh, point. So we have to think about, um, at some point, I'm into naming and shaming, uh, in the hopes that we will get people to recategorize and uh, uh, rethink uh, their positions as to what is in their best interests. But, but I understand uh, your view that a spoiler can be actually a facilitator. It all depends which role they decide to take. Uh, finally, let me ask you both, uh, what, what can we, the United States and the international community, do to ensure that the UN-mediated talks are inclusive especially of historically marginalized communities and not limited primarily to elites. Mr. Tucker? Yes, thank you. That's an excellent question. I think first I would say, I've been speaking to many people on the ground in Khartoum in the past week that are involved in some of the discussions among resistance committees and civilian groups and political groups on the political consensus, political positions. Everyone has said that the nature of these groups are important, sometimes they're horizontal and diffuse, and there needs to be time for them to develop their positions, and perhaps equally importantly, to engage with political parties on how they can support these and how they can bring them forward in inevitable negotiations in which perhaps political individuals will take the lead. So as I mentioned in my testimony, there is urgency, there definitely is, but they cannot be rushed to submit positions that perhaps fracture them and their loose coalitions. I've frankly seen that happen before in South Sudan and in Sudan, and that's unfortunate. I think you know there's, there's precedent for strong, robust international engagement on these issues. In my experience with the African Union and the UN in Sudan and South Sudan, it is best when there are links between UN operations and the Security Council, the P5 and the A3 in New York, connected directly to the region, to AU headquarters and EGOD, so you can invoke that real high-level senior diplomatic engagement that has to be connected to what SRSG is doing on the ground in Khartoum. Um, and so what I'm getting at here is it can't just be one individual with technical support in a capital. They need to be able to invoke that higher authority when and as needed, discussions underway on sort of international eminent personalities are important, but we desperately need more direct engagement and signaling from the UN in New York and African Union headquarters. That, first and foremost, is coordinated and not at cross-purposes with what civilians are looking at right now. Mm -hmm. Dr. Iro, any thoughts on this? Yes, I completely agree with uh, what my colleague at USIP um, has said, and I think it's worth acknowledging um, in front of your committee that the, the, the initiative by the, by the United Nations um, has not been without problems as well. Um, it has come under fairly substantial criticisms um, from some in the protest movement um, who, who feel at one level that that process has been rushed. Um, they also feel that um, there wasn't a sufficiently um, um, consultative um, approach um, taken towards talks as well. Um, some do feel that the international, Sudan's um, international partners 
and including the US, I, I have to ha add, um, rushed to embrace um, the UN-led um, talks um, without strongly demanding that those should be um, better coordinated um, with all of Sudani Sudan's actors to give it the best chance of success. And I think it's worth adding here that um, the resistance committees, um, Sudanese resistance committees are currently coordinating their own efforts um, to come up with um, an agreed position on the, a way forward for the country. Um, it's a laudable effort um, and it will ultimately form a, a key part of any future talks that we want to see um, in the country. So I would say that in the meantime, the, the UN um, should continue its attempt to bring various parties to the table, but it should pay um, um, special attention um, to two conditions that we believe at the International Crisis Group are important. Um, first, that those talks should be Sudanese-led and that they should be, as I said in my oral statement, maximally inclusive, and that especially um, they must include um, prominent voices from um, Sudanese um, neighborhood-resistant um, committees. This is what we see as vital um, if those talks um, mm -hmm. are going to succeed. Mm -hmm. Very well. Well, thank you both for your insights. Uh, it's been very uh, instructive and helpful. And we look forward to continuing to engage with both of you as we move forward. Uh, seeing no other member before the committee uh, seeking recognition, this record will stay open until the close of business tomorrow. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.